just offer value and offer value. Don't try to take something from them. Offering value could be giving them something or it could be booking a consultation like, yo, I have money. That's value. I'm going to give you $500 or $1,000 or $100 for a 30, 60 minute consultation, whatever. That's also offering value, right? So the key is you just want to offer. You don't want to take. Welcome to another episode of Hyperior Presents. In this episode, I talk to Ty Frankel. Ty started in the music business selling songs to radio stations and making hundreds of thousands of dollars. The business was hard to scale, so he decided to change his life and show everyone on Twitter how to start a successful agency. He grew his Twitter account by thousands of followers in less than three months. In this episode, you'll learn how to become a king at creating relationships and how to create a foolproof system to connect to people in the DMs. So Ty, you sent me a DM and you said, hey, do you want to make 100 bucks in five seconds? And I thought that was really interesting. So tell me a little about that. Yeah, well, that DM was really, you know, I'm on Twitter and I'm trying to grow as much as possible, you know, within my target niche. And basically, I figured out a way to kind of hack it to where you're paying Twitter influencers or whatever. You're paying them anywhere from 100 to 300 bucks, even $50. It depends on this, even $10. I mean, someone with like a thousand followers, potentially. You're paying them for a genuine shout out, right? So they write the shout out or you write it for them. In this case, I wrote it for them. And they would shout you out on their page, just like it would be a normal shout out. And it's a really great way to get followers, especially like in your target niche. So I sent it to you and I didn't just send it to you. So don't feel too special, man. I sent it to about 15 other people to see what I can get. So now we're here. Well, it gets people's attention. That's, I think, very interesting. In the end, you get followers by either spending time or money. And some people spend a lot of time on Twitter or they're in engagement groups. And other people just spend a bit of money and they grow like that. So, Yeah, I do both because I'm addicted to Twitter. So I got <laughs> to chill. And Hype Fury helps me out with that. So I appreciate that, Yannick. Cool. So let's back up a little because, you know, you've been on Twitter for a while, but you only recently really started firing up your account. Tell us a little bit how you landed in the online world. Well, how I landed in the online, I'm 23 years old. We grew up in it. So you're not into, I don't know, restaurant business. You are in, you know, the, the digital space to make money. Got you. So that was what you're talking about. So when I was 13, 14 years old, my dad had a sabbatical. He's an economics professor. He had a sabbatical in Israel, right? Which is a sabbatical is every seven years. Your university lets you pick another school. You can go to it, teach there, and they'll fund it. They'll pay you. So my dad chose Israel because my mom is Israeli. My family's over there. Cool. We go be with the family for a year. We haven't lived there in like um, about 10, 11 years at that point. So cool. We had to spend a year with the family. We went over there and then I started getting into underground hip hop. And I was really into like old school, like Nas and Rakim and Big Daddy Kane and Wu-Tang Clan and even the underground people today like Rex and Atmosphere and all these underground acts, Brother Ali. And then basically some people on the forum, they started to produce music. I followed their suit. I was 14 years old. At the same time, I also had a hip hop blog. So like I interviewed rappers and I transcribed it and we had like three, 400 viewers a day. And I got into producing And then I fell in love with it like right away, like day one. I was like, this is what I want to do. So I started producing and then I kind of got into it that way. I started selling my beats to rappers and I got some placements with bigger artists like G Herbo and Paul Wall. And that's kind of how I went to the online space. Cool. And so what happened after that? Well, I started making beats for rappers and then 
I was like 15, 16 years old and my beats weren't that good. You need to be produced for like six, seven, eight years for your beats to really be damn good. So my beats were okay. I made like maybe two, three, four thousand dollars in high school. So like two, three years. And then after that, I was like, well, I was 17 and I went, I graduated high school at 17, went to live with my mom for a year in 2015 in Israel. And during that time, I was like, man, like selling beats to rappers is like, first of all, they disrespect you. You're a dime a dozen. You're not offering something that's in demand unless you're like Pharrell or Timbaland, one of the best producers. So I was like, what else can I do in music to make me money? And I was like, I discovered this forum called Gear Sluts. It still exists. They have a music for picture sub forum. Within that picture, there were like tons of people making lots and lots of money selling their music to TV and movies and commercials. And I was like, okay, cool. I befriended some people there. And actually one of the guys on the forum was one of the first big companies I worked with called Megatrax. And I started making music for TV and film. And it kind of snowballed like that. I made music. I made my first royalty statement was like for $500 in September, 2015. It takes time to music to get on TV until you get back the royalties. And then it kind of snowballed from there. I mean, I started reading books in 2016. I got into like self-improvement Twitter. I know um, like Alexander Cortez and Ed Lattimore and there was this guy called LA Playboy and Dylan Madden was on there back in the day. And I got into that. I started reading books, started going to the gym, lifting weights, doing all this, these healthy things. That, And then it changed my mindset. So I basically started being like, okay, well, why am I making all the music when I could just leverage my business connections and my acumen and my ear? And then basically have other producers, we can team up. I can take like 40%. They can make the music. I could give them notes. I'd be like, yo, fix this, fix this, fix this. And then we could sign it to one of the companies that I worked with. So that's how that started. And then I did that for half a year, a year. And then eventually I gave it a name, kept growing it. And then it, it turned into Shutdown Media eventually, my media agency. Nice. And so you became like a middleman between the producers and you know the TV shows and stuff like that. Why did you decide to do that? Well, it was between the producers, artists, and there I was a middleman to the middlemen. So there's middlemen and they basically bought our music and their clients were in TV. Their clients were in media, video games. So they bought it from us, let's say $500 for a song or a thousand. And then they put it in TV. They make money from it up front. And then they also make royalties and we also make royalties on the back end as well. That's how that worked. And it was really just, we had a roster of 50 musicians and it wasn't just a middleman because we added tons of value. I executive produced everything myself. We went through six, seven, eight, nine revisions on every single song to make sure all of our songs were really damn good and really polished. And we were making the best music in the industry, you know, bar none, the best hip hop in the industry, the best like electronic music in the industry, pop stuff. But why I started my agency was because it's just reading like Rich Dad, Poor Dad and How to Win Friends and Influence People, like the typical starter books for the journey that... I hope most people go in in their lives, but yeah. I read those and it was like, okay, why would I work for money when I could just leverage my time in more valuable ways, basically? So that's how that started. And so you, how long did you do that agency stuff? Up in, It was like 2016. I gave it a formal name 2017 and then up until November of last year, November 2020. And that's when you sold it. I didn't sell it. I disbanded it. So we were like a service provider and the margin was super low and we couldn't really sell anything. It was a lot of systems, and but like there were not any other companies in our space because our clients, they usually worked with individual producers and composers and artists. So there was really no one to sell it to. But I guess I'm indirectly selling it now on Twitter by like providing all my knowledge and stuff like that, you know, very indirectly. 
And so this is one of your success stories, I guess. You made a lot of revenue, but you also have quite a few failures, at least that's what I saw in your Twitter profile. Run us through how you lost money on Bitcoin and uh, the other ventures. So I was in Thailand in 2017. And after high school, I went traveling. I went crazy. But I was in Thailand for like six months in two different times. So six, seven months total. And I invested in Bitcoin in September 2017 when it was like at 3,500, right before it had the big run up. And that was my first investment. And I think I made more money and then I kept putting more and more in. I ended up investing like $68,000 in Bitcoin. And I put it in Bitcoin and then I mostly had alts. And then the alts were going crazy. Like run up. it was eventually worth $140,000. But I didn't take it out, obviously, there at that point. I was like, let it run, let it run. This is going to go crazy. Like I was like delusional in a way. I was like, this is going to go crazy. This is going to go 100x, whatever. Like I'm going to be a trillionaire off this. It didn't do that. I kind of did the opposite of it. So I had one coin called the simple token and it's OST. That's the ticker. And it literally went from $1.29 to under to like 1.5 cents or like under a cent. And I was like, that's the kind of, it went from 140,000. And then to like April, 2018, I think it was like at 13,000, <laughs> my uh, portfolio. If only the chairman tweeted about that back then. Huh? Yeah, man. I was like, all right, whatever. And then it went to down to 33,000. So there was kind of run up and then it went up to 70. I was like, all right, cool. It's going to go back up. And then it went down to 13. So it was like a zigzag situation. I was like, all right, F this. Let me just take it out at 13, whatever. I lost money. You could write off $3,000 a year in losses. So I'll just write this off like for the next 20 years every year. <laughs> but then I'll just invest in stuff I can control. So I kind of learned like, all right, I'm just going to invest in business. I'm going to invest in education and labor, which is a part of business. And then in uh, real estate as well. So I started studying real estate. Yeah, that's that's how that happened. All right. So you left the uh, crypto uh, boom. Lesson learned. You've been on Twitter for a while, but I don't think you've been that active. You know, I, only recently you've been really, you know, spending a lot of time and effort on Twitter. Why did that change? Because what happened was with Shutdown Media is that we had eight employees and we did 600,000 revenue last year and 150,000 profit. So we had eight employees and it was just a hassle. It was a really big hassle. And it was like, I was worth so much more my input in terms of like how good I am at systemizing things. And I'm, I'm a systems and operations type of guy. In terms of like my mind, I was like, I should be a millionaire by now. But we were very capped for growth. We were in an industry to where we did graphics for a while and it's like $300 an album cover and I have to give feedback and just working on all these small projects for 5,000 or 10,000 or $300. It didn't make sense. And we were very capped for growth because we did not distribute our music. We just made it and we sold it to the distributors. So they were, got jealous as well of us. They're like, why are you working with every company? Well, I mean, I'm trying to make a business here. So they got very jealous and it's like, all right, to make money, we have to distribute our music. So I tried looking into that. We worked on this company called Uncivilized Music for two years on this project. We never released it. It was going to be royalty-free music and we're going to offer it to, we're going to offer it to influencers to put in their um, videos, like YouTubers and TikTokers, whatever. And then also pitch it to like video games and TV, more like high budget projects and situations. And I talked to two or three people in the industry. One of my not like great friends, but good guy. We talked like two, three, four times, had a meeting at his office. Russ, um, his name is Russ Emanuel. And he owns this company called Extreme Music. They do like 50, 100 million a year. And I know this guy also, Daniel Holter. He's one of my mentors in the industry. And he owns this company called The License Lab. They're a very successful company as well in the space. They basically both told me like, dude, you're going to need like a million dollars plus a year on marketing. And it's going to take you five, six, seven years to even break even 
on this uncivilized music thing. And our thing was like, this is the best music in the industry because we've made the best music in the industry, you know? So that was where we were coming from. And it was like, I'm not trying to spend five, six, seven years just to break even. I'm 23, I'm 22, 23 years old. Like I want to have like 10, 15, 20 million by the time I'm 25, 30 years old, you know? So that combined with people just employees coming in and out and being annoying, like frankly, like it wasn't the best situation in terms of culture or team. It was just a lot of work and people were just doing all these different roles and it was just discombobulated, even though we had really great systems, which kind of kept everything in place. It was just too much work for too little money. And I knew my skills were more valuable. That's why I left. Uh, that's why I disbanded Shutdown Media, started on Twitter, started my um, agency Shutdown Emails. Hmm. But what did you try to increase your margins? You can't really do that in that space. Everyone was being squeezed. We were being squeezed. We were squeezing our musicians. We made a thousand songs in 2019 and like maybe six, 700 last year because Corona. We were primed to grow before Corona, but everyone's being squeezed. So there's really not room to, to increase your margins. Wow. So 600 bucks and then that's what a song is worth. 200 sometimes, sometimes 1100, right? We signed a deal with Universal Music, a joint venture label deal to where we did 120 songs for them a year. So 10 albums of 12 tracks and they paid us 1100 a song. We made really great margin on that. But then you also get royalties on the back end, right? So whenever something gets placed, you get some royalties. How does that royalty uh, scheme work? Basically, whenever something gets placed in TV, less so movies, more like TV and radio, then there are these companies in the US called BMI and ASCAP. And then I was with BMI and they're basically non, um, they're called performance rights organizations. They're nonprofits. They take like a four or 5% admin fee. They have offices in LA and Nashville and New York. Yeah. They just check a box every time your song is on the radio and then you get a percentage. It's just like a cue sheet, a TV show files. Okay, here's a sheet. All the music was played for this long and it's by this person, whatever. The organization ingests that and then pays everyone out, basically. How much money would you make off a song that was pretty popular on radio? Or It, it would really depend. So I had this song that was using a Pandora commercial. And you can find it on our Shutdown Music Instagram, actually, which is still active. I'm just going to leave it up, even though we're, we're inactive. Basically, this song was played like 100 something million times in the Pandora commercial. So I had 25% of the rider share, which is like an eighth of the overall percentage, like what, 12 and a half percent total. And I know I made like five, $6,000 on it. So it probably made like 40, 50,000. And then I also had a song that was on a Fortnite trailer and I owned 25% of those royalties. That got like 60 million views. It has like 40 million and then they did it in French and German, like 5 million each, whatever. And then that one, I think I made like another four or 5,000 off it. But those are the outliers. Most of the songs make no money actually after they buy it. And is that is that taken into account when you create a, a song, you know, where you say, okay, hey, this is not going to do anything. We're going to charge the 1100 versus we're going to bet on that this is going to be a popular song and we're going to lower our fee? Nah, because you don't really know. It's What we try to do is we try to make the best music possible at the highest number possible. So we try to make the most high quality music we possibly can and let the chips fall where they may. Cause you didn't know some songs that I thought were just not good ended up making five, $10,000 in royalties. But some songs that I thought were like, damn, this is like a masterpiece. Cause we made some really good songs. Our best work was like really damn good, almost on a commercial level. They made no money. So we just tried to make the best high quality music possible and kind of let everything happen. That's, I think, the best thing you could do. But there's also a lot of friction in this market, you know, where you have to go back and forth a lot between musicians and songwriters and probably a lot of stuff. 
Yes, because let's say we had a revision from a company, right? They give us like, oh, can you change this, right? And that usually didn't happen because we did it in-house. So it happened maybe 1% of the time. But if it did, it would go from the client to our project manager, to our musician. Musician would upload a new version. I would come in as the executive producer say, hey, this is good to go. The musician would finish it up. It would go to our admin assistant. They would upload the MP3 file. It would go to our project manager. They would send the file back to the client. And then our client would say, yes, this is good to go. And then the project manager would tell the admin assistant. The admin assistant would tell the engineer. Like, it was just crazy. So in just one small revision, like, hey, can you just take this little drum sound, this little snare out of the song? That's what it had to go through. I hear a SaaS idea right here. Man. This is the <laughs> right foot of taking this market. No, really. But there's so much friction. There's low margin. So software that could help with this kind of stuff. Yeah. 100%. But the thing is, like, there's not companies in this space. There are producers and composers and artists that work with these companies. We were the only one that was like, yo, let's systemize this. Let's be a company. Let's have all these artists on the team, whatever. It kind of grew very organically. All right. So in the end, you know, you decided to become active on Twitter again. You know, you uh, read Rich Dad Poor Dad, which was probably one of my first like self-help books. That was an eye opener for me as well. What was your goal to using Twitter again? Well, I got on Twitter in 09 and it was under a different account. This account I'm using now, funny enough, Yannick, this was my account for my hip hop blog when I was 14 in 2012. Same exact, like if you looked up like some underground rappers names, you could see me doing posts on them and stuff like Sky Zoo or someone like that. But basically what got me started is like, all right, cool. Like it was mid-November and then I just disbanded Shutdown Media and I was going to go in on Shutdown Emails. It wasn't one thing. I always knew a personal brand was very powerful, but I always like kind of doubted it in my mind. Like, oh, how I can't do this. Like me, like, what do I have to say? Like, so that kind of was in my mind and I was just like, oh, it. let me just try this. Let me just put out really great content. I'm pretty good at writing, at copywriting. Never formally trained. I read some books, Dan Kennedy, more direct response stuff. I read cash advertising, things like that, but never really trained at it after I never did any drills or like, yo, let me really improve my copywriting. So I just started and I started putting out content. I guess people liked it. I started connecting with people. I connected with um Ken, Vision and Sales on Twitter. He's, I love this guy. He's, the, he's an amazing guy. With other people started connecting with them more, with you as well later on, putting out more content and it kind of snowballed. So after like three, four days when I started taking it serious, I was like, I'm pretty good at this. I think it's very powerful. That's kind of where I am now. You know, the past two and a half months have been like transformative in a way no other time duration has been in my life. Like I'm so happy I stopped Shutdown Media. Thank you to Ali for quitting the last straw. She's my operations manager. She quit. I would like to tell her thank you so much because without you, I wouldn't have gone on this path. Seriously. I owe you so much. And so how many followers did you have like three months back? 1,700. Okay, 1,700. And now, okay, you're at seven, 8,000 right now. So that's pretty quickly you've grown. What kind of strategy? We've, we've talked about the first one in like the, the beginning of the show. What, what kind of strategies do you use to grow your account? What kind of strategy I use? I use one, five to 10 tweets a day. Solo tweets, right? So they're not retweets. They're just tweets that I come up with. Usually around five or six. I do that and I try to make them the best tweets possible. Like the most valuable tweets I can put out there. How do you come up with them? I just think, I just sit down and think, or sometimes they just come to me and I put them in my phone or I just schedule them for like May 22nd, 2021 at 2.54 p.m. on the Twitter web app. And it's like, cool, this tweet's gonna come out then. I don't care, I'll just shoot it down the line. Or I just sit down and I'm like, all right, cool. Let me just come up with 20 tweets. And I do that like once a week. And then I schedule them, some of them on Hype Fury, some of them on the web app. 
So I kind of go back and forth. And yeah, that's basically how I do it. I do threads to kind of show my expertise. I realize how much of an expert on many things I am. And I try to engage a lot. And then I try to um, hop in people's DMs because that's where like real relationships get forged. And they'll engage with you because not that that's what matters, the real relationship. I'm trying to really make friends, like real friends. That's what I think is most valuable, more than business connections, more than anything. But I mean, if you do hop in people's DMs, some people you're going to become friends with. Some you're going to talk to once or twice and not talk to again. Some you're going to become best friends with and some you're never going to talk to again. But what it does is it definitely creates stronger bonds and it kind of encourages them to connect with you on the timeline. And that helps your account grow as well. So I've, I've kind of taken that strategy. I just love connecting with people too. So. And so besides the, hey, you want to make a hundred bucks in five seconds DM, what kind of messages do you send to connect with others? Well, that one I just did this last week, but I usually say, hey, whatever your name is, I see something they tweeted and maybe we interacted on the timeline and I kind of bring that conversation into the DMs and maybe expand on it or maybe provide some kind of value that I can give to them. So for example, Steven Story, great dude on Twitter. I DM'd him yesterday for the first time. He's been following me for a while. I've been following him. We've been interacting. He's like, yo, I'm building like an army of consultants like to help me out in every phase of my business. And I'm like, well, I just did that. Let me hop into his DMs and, and kind of share with him my experience and like open up my network to him and see if there's anything I can help him out with. So that's what I did. Little things like that. I try to see, okay, where is this person struggling or where do they maybe need more help? And how could I jump in and provide value? Maybe that's being funny or maybe that's just providing real concrete value to make someone money or save someone time. What's interesting here, not everyone has like the balls you have and like the shamelessness. Nothing that you have anything to be ashamed of, but more like, F it, I'm going to do it. How can people who don't have this mentality still reach out to others? Just do it. Don't give a f people. Like one thing, I mean, if you DM 100 people and no one responds, well, you've got an issue there. I mean, it's because you're not offering value. We, one thing you got to be is a valuable person. So you can be valuable. Everyone has value. You can be valuable with your time. You can be valuable with your money, with your knowledge, with your experience, with your connections. Like everyone has some form of value. Even a 12-year-old kid can be like, yo, I'm going to design this for you. I'm going to do this for you, whatever. Everyone has value. So you've got to figure out what your value is. And then you connect with someone off your timeline or email them or whatever you want to do. Like take shots. When I was with Shutdown Media and I was doing lots of the outreach, that's pretty much automated now for shutdown emails. But when I was doing that, I took five shots a day. I literally had an email label called shots and I took five shots a day. CEOs of venture capital funds, uh, musicians that I really wanted to work with, um, A&Rs and publishers. I emailed five of them every single day. It was very personalized. It was about the person. It was kind of showcasing my value and what I could add to their lives. And lots of people didn't respond. Lots of people did respond, but you just want to kind of condition your brain to like, this is an everyday thing. I don't care if people respond. If I do it to 100 people, I know at least 10, 15 are going to respond. And those are the 10 or 15 people that I care about. Even one person, if they respond, that could turn into a trillion dollar thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a good one. And actually, I wrote this down because I was hoping we would get to this, is let's try some practice shots. As in, I wrote down, let's say you're on the Hype Fury team as well. And we want to reach out to a reporter who creates a lot of threads, you know? They cost a lot of time. We have software that helps with that. How would you connect with that person? Well, how many followers does this person have? 10K. 10K? Well, then you can connect with them and you have a solid size account. So you could they're going to be more receptive to you right away. And especially since you have Hype Fear, a really great product, you have a lot of value to add, a lot of social proof. So 
that's a part of it as well. Like if you have, if your egg account with zero followers and all this shit, like you could be worth 500 million, but dude, you could be worth 500 million, but no one knows it. So that's why your DM has to be super strong. Because if you DM someone and it's not super strong, they're going to click on you and be like, who is this? You know what I mean? Like no social proof, whatever. If it's you or me or someone with 10, 20, 30, 50,000 followers, imagine if Chris Brown DM'd you. If they just did a period, you would respond. You know what I mean? So like that really helps. I'm not, it obviously helps. But if I was you, what I would do is follow them and interact with them for a week or two, connect with them on the timeline and then DM them about something that they tweeted about, like maybe to add value or help or maybe just expand on a topic. And I think that's the best way of doing it because like, okay, they see your name, you added value already in the timeline. So now they know when you're in your DMs, you're going to add value in the DMs. It's not like you're this dude on the timeline, add tons of values, funny, whatever, once is, is very warm and positive, and you're going to be a completely different guy. So they're going to expect that from you on in the DMs. So that's what I would recommend. And then reach out and just have a very simple, succinct DM and, and kind of reverse engineer it if you were in their shoes, what kind of DM would you want to receive? Something that adds value to them possibly. And then kind of um, do it like that. And I think you're going to have a very high success rate doing that. So you wouldn't want to score a touchdown on the first uh, DM. You want to connect with that person first. You don't want to say, hey, thank you for your threats. You should use Hype Fury. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> you shouldn't pitch them in the first thread. I think you want to just connect with them and then... I mean, if you're posting about hype for you, like just get them to follow you and then they're going to see your content and then they're going to take interest in it by themselves, right? They could do that. Or you could be like, yo, I noticed you this, this, and this. You're on Twitter like 24-7. I mean, to save you some time, like what if there was a scheduling software that like you would frame it in a really sexy way and to save them time and be a convenience for them? And I think you could do that maybe like in the second or third DM, but... Like if you're pitching your product or service, like Twitter is just like LinkedIn to where it's social selling. You can also pitch right away. Like it, there's really no formula to it. Like I've never pitched someone right away in the DMs, like a service that I was offering. I've done it via email and it's successful all the time. But I'm sure you, I'm sure you could do both. Like if it is really valuable to them, I'm sure you could pitch a service on the first or second DMs. If we wanted to systemize something like that or, you know, for, for any other business, you say, you know, you own a marketing agency and you want to uh, reach customers over Twitter. How would you start conversations with founders that don't know anything about marketing? They're just a tech guy doing, um, doing the program. What, how do you systemize it or how do you start those conversations? Yeah, I think both. So one, how can you create a system? So you, you know, you keep sending them, you keep improving your messages. And the other one is, you know, how would you literally construct those messages? In terms of systemizing, you would create, let's say three, four different opener templates and you would create scripts, right? When someone responds, obviously you might tailor those scripts, but you'd at least create the first couple DMs, whatever, even the first DM until they respond and then handle it from there. So you create that, the first DM, you create four or five different ones, and then you create these different sheets, these different um, sheets in Google, Google Sheets, and you would do A-B testing. So you'd be like, all right, cool. I'm going to do 50 DMs with this message, 50 with this message, 50 with this, and 50 with this. And then you would send it and you would see, you could track the open rates on Twitter because you see the little confirm thing, um, the, blue, the blue checks. So you would track the open rates and then you would track the reply rates on each one. And then you would have statistics on which message works better. So then, okay, cool. We're only going to use this one or two messages moving forward. And then you would maybe add two or three more messages, A, B test again. It's just an ongoing cycle to figure out what the best message or group of messages are. You would do that. And then what you would do is you would systemize the outreach in terms of finding prospects. Okay, who are your ideal prospects? You kind of 
maybe age, sex, they're in this niche, they do this type of thing, maybe they follow these people. You kind of develop these different parameters, they're in this community, whatever, on Twitter. And then you would create a system, maybe you create a video of you finding these prospects yourself. Okay, here's 30 minutes of me finding like, a, like 50 prospects. And this is how you do it. Maybe here's a video, five minutes of this way, of this technique, and then five minutes of this technique. You would have three, four, five different techniques. Maybe that's search. Maybe that's going into someone's followers. Maybe that's a list that someone's publicly created, right? So you would have all these different techniques. You'd make videos of them and you would make step-by-step processes like step one, you know, go to the search and do this. Step-by-step processes written out and a video for each step-by-step process of you actually doing it, right? And then what you would do, if you wanted to do it yourself, you could, or you could assign it to an employee that was working for you, a VA or something, and put it on their calendar. So you'd put it on their calendar and be like, find and reach out to 50 prospects, right? You put it on their calendar. If you wanted 100 prospects a week, cool. You do it two times a week. Or you wanted 150, three times a week. Or you could do 20 a day. You could do it five times a week. It really doesn't matter. You just put it on their calendar. Link the process on that calendar event. I use Notion. So you just hyperlink it. So whenever they want, oh, how do I do this? They just click the, the thing in their calendar. It's very simple. And then they would just reach out for you. You know, Make sure you provided everything you need to provide for your employee in terms of processes, systems, in terms of the template messages where they access those in terms of if you want to write first lines for everyone, make sure they know how to do that. And that's basically how I would do it. Cool. And what, what ingredients does a great DM have? I mean, I just DM'd you and make you... I think curiosity is good because no one's going to not respond to that DM that I sent you. Like literally everyone I sent you has at least responded. That's interesting. I wasn't interested in, in the money, but I was interested in what, what it was. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. So like that's... I think I just discovered something there. You guys can take it and run with it if you want. I'm going to keep using that here and there. But I think one, you could like generate tons of curiosity, which is what my DM did and offer value in that. So I kind of generated curiosity plus offered value in that curiosity. Like who wouldn't want to make $100 in five seconds? You know, I think a very few people would not at least be interested. So do that or, you know, say, hey, use their name, whatever. Kind of people love hearing their name. And then you would write a sentence or a few sentences about them and like how that impacted you. And then maybe don't say anything like, yo, I'd love to pick your brain or anything. Or like you're taking, don't take, give, be like, yo, I just found this resource that maybe it'll be able to help you. Or I noticed that you were doing this. Here's like all this information. Or I know this consultant in this area, maybe like I can hook you guys up. That's the best way. Or I have this service called Hub Fury. It'd be able to take, you know, to give you back so much time that you're spending on Twitter. Just offer value. And offer value. Don't try to take something from them. Offering value could be giving them something or it could be booking a consultation like, yo, I have money. That's value. I want to give you $500 or $1,000 or $100 for a 30, 60 minute consultation, whatever. That's also offering value, right? So the key is you just want to offer. You don't want to take like, hey, can I call you? Can we hop on a call or can I pick your brain? You're taking. If you want to pick their brain, offer them money, right? So you want to offer value. That's the key. Okay. So you're now at just below 8,000 followers. You, I think you have an email list. What's your goal for the next couple of months? What are you planning? And what can we learn from you? Oh, my goals have changed since I started going on Twitter, Yannick. And at first it was like, all right, let me see how much I can grow this. I don't know how powerful it is. Let me just try to grow it. But then recently, like I just realized how powerful having a real connection with your followers are is like really telling stories about yourself and being vulnerable and connecting and engaging and responding, all that stuff. And at the same time, being funny, I try to be funny sometimes. 
maybe it doesn't work, but I hope it works. I, it's funny to me, but that's what, <laughs> I'm posting for me as well. But I try to be funny, and then I try to like really add lots of value. Like, yo, you can literally take what I say and put it in your business and make tons of money. Like, I try to have those tweets a lot, whether that's a thread and I like some of the threads I put out. Like, I think they're gold. Like this profit sharing thread I just put out the other day and hiring your first five employees and kind of going through my systems as well. Like I think they're gold and I try to put those out to offer value. But yeah, basically doing that, that has kind of opened my eyes to how powerful it is. You know, when people see you as an authority on something, right? And you just being consistent. So right now what I have planned, I have a couple of things I can't really talk about, but what I can talk about is I'm working on a SaaS. I'm working on a couple more offers. I can't go too deep into that. I'm working on my agency stuff as well. And then just partnering up with people on Twitter, like people just hit me up all the time, like consultations or coaching or just partnering up. I know this this big guy on Twitter, I'm not going to say his name, but he's creating a new SaaS and he just hit me up yesterday and you all know who this is. And he wanted me to partner up on, on the SaaS. So just different situations like that. It The thing is like, I'm trying to leverage my time as much as possible. So I'm not trying to, okay, here's coaching and it's like 20 hours a week. And it's like, I like to work 20 hours a week in total. I don't like to work that much. I'm lazy. I'm just trying to leverage my time in the most, (laughs) the best way possible. And it's like, if I could do this an hour a week and make a million dollars from it, that's the kind of opportunity I'm looking for. And I think what you mentioned before is, I have this quote from JK Molina, but he's, be a saint when tweeting and being bro in the comments. And I think that's something you do really, really well. Uh, because a lot of people who comment on my tweets or on anyone's tweets, they're like, yeah, I agree 100%. Or they just try to improve on your tweet and that's not how to do it. And I think the reason why you're so approachable is also because you are a, a real bro in the comments, you know? Oh, cool. I try to be who I am in real life. Uh, I think, well, it, it works. And I think a lot of people can learn from that, you know? I think a lot of people, when they read something, they want to improve upon or they want to show, hey, I'm the man. And you're still the man, Ty. You're still you're cool. You're cool dude. And you could probably improve on on a lot of stuff that that's being said, but you still try to genuinely connect. So I think, yeah. Uh, how can people uh, get a lesson from that? Well, I think it's being well. That's who I am as a person. I don't know if everyone's like that. I've always been like my mom is very social, and my dad is like a genius, but he's less social. So I think I got a little from both. I'm not as smart as my dad, and then I'm not as social as my mom. She's super social. She'll literally make a friend in two seconds, and I'm almost the same. But I think it's just being who you are, and if being social is not who you are, then maybe step outside of your comfort zone because I think you can develop into loving the process and the end result of actually making lots of friends and being connected with people and adding value and just improving people's lives and by way of improving others' lives your life will improve hundred percent. So I think it's just loving that and just try to be funny. Like I think funny is probably like a, mu- I've never like worked on it, but like try to train that muscle. I think it's a muscle you can, that can be trained. So sometimes I like to put memes in the comments or sometimes I like to make sexual jokes in the comments. Just one time, this one guy told me, let remove it. Like it's too, too much. I was like, all right, cool. Yeah. He's like, yo, my feet is PG. So I'm like, all right, cool. You're a PG. Well, I'm not, I got it noted. Right. So I kind of noted that. But everyone else is um, free for all. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I like to do that. And then, you know, memes, I think really connect. So like sometimes I go on broke Twitter and I try to find memes because they're broke Twitter. They have all the time on their hands. They can generate memes in an instant. Like they have amazing memes. I follow some NBA pages 
and they have some a lot of memes and I and then I sometimes I try to like hashtag like communism or something and then I'm like all right cool I'm gonna just dive into this <laughs> I didn't even know broke Twitter was a thing man it is yeah I don't think they call it broke I don't think they call it broke Twitter but I know that money Twitter calls that side of Twitter broke Twitter and so for somebody who doesn't know broke Twitter what is it a bunch of broke people on Twitter dude it's like um Jeff Bezos, if he gave like $1 to every American that this would happen, you know, like that type of thing. And it's like, um, they hate landlords, right? And it's like, you own my house and I don't know what is going on, you know? So (laughs) that's basically what broke Twitter is. And they just like complain, complain, complain. Some of it I totally understand. Like some broke people, I feel like uh, poor people are trapped in a situation and they're not that, like IQ plays a big difference. Like if you're under a hundred IQ, it's tough. It's tough in life. And, and, And I feel sorry for those people especially if they grew up in violence and drugs, it's very hard to make it out. I'm not going to poo-poo that situation. But then again, a lot of the people on broke Twitter that are just broke or poor, like they could totally change their lives. So I think it's a mix of both. And they're just kind of trying to have an escape. They have Twitter and they're trying to, it's sort of like a drug because it does provide you with a dopamine and it provides you from an escape on your daily, the, the realities of your daily life. And I think that's what they're trying to do. Okay, Ty, thank you very much, man. This was really fun. Where can people find you? Oh, thank you, man. At the Ty Franco on Twitter. I mean, I'm on Instagram too, but I don't post, so probably shouldn't follow me there. Cool. Thank you, man. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, Yannick, thank you so much, man. I love Hype Fury, by the way, and I use it like almost every day. So thank you so much for creating like an incredible product as well that improves my life. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. If you enjoyed the show, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter with your favorite part. See you again next week. Thank you.